Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Circle Sanctuary Network Podcasts, brought to you by Circle Sanctuary, one of the oldest nature spirituality churches in the United States, connecting people of nature center paths around the world. Join us through the week for a variety of shows discussing various topics, celebrating the divine in all of its forms through nature worship, rituals, education, and building bridges of community. Hello, and welcome to the Blue Marble Podcast, a program of the Circle Sanctuary Network Podcast, CSNP. I'm your host, Reverend Charlotte Bear, Circle Sanctuary Minister and Facilitator of the Green Faith Circle Ministry at Circle Sanctuary that is committed to education about the climate crisis, climate justice, and eco-activism today. In 1972, the last Apollo mission took a photo of the Earth that showed the big picture of our water-based planet. And this image was named the Blue Marble. And it has become an iconic image for the Earth Day movement and the environmental movement since then. It is also one of the most published and used photographs ever, which tells you something. Blue Marble podcasts examine the current climate crisis, including sources, impacts, and solutions available to us now, and feature special guests who offer their unique stories, perspective, and expertise. Today, I'm joined by two special guests, Reverend James Jufer, U.S. Army National Guard, and Allison Klein, Minister in Training with the U.S. Air Force, to discuss climate change and the military, a domestic and global issue. James Jufer is a six-year veteran of the United States Army from 2012 to 2018. He served as a chaplain assistant in the 82nd Airborne Division and as a psychological operations sergeant in United States Army Special Operations Command. He earned his Master's of Divinity degree from Colgate-Rochester-Crozer Divinity School. And after several years participating in Circle Sanctuary's Open Circle Military Ministries, James entered the ministry training program with Circle in 2019 and was ordained in 2021. James works with Circle's military and educational ministries, serving as an administrator for the Pagan Military Association and as an ombudsman for the ministry training program. He continues to serve in the National Guard as a human resources officer. Allison Klein is an Air Force disabled veteran with 13 years active duty experience. She currently works as an Air Force civil servant, overseeing government funding for a 700 personnel quality of life support unit that includes dining facilities, gyms, childcare, recreation, and more. Allison also serves as the distinctive religious group leader for Falcon Circle, an open circle for Air Force Academy cadets at the Cadet Chapel with a worship location nearby the chapel. She is also a wife, a full-time master's student, a member of Circle Sanctuary's Lady Liberty League, military circles, oversight point of contact for Circle Sanctuary, and mother of two great bears, as she calls her children. She is currently with the ministry and training program. Welcome to both of you. So glad that you're here. It's good to be here. Thank you for having us. Uh, it's my pleasure. And I just want to have a disclaimer for our audience. None of us uh, on this podcast are experts in Department of Defense, climate policy, or otherwise. And the opinions that we're sharing today do not reflect the different agencies that are being discussed. They are our own personal experiences and opinions. 
So to kick us off, a question for each of you. I, I kind of referenced it in the bio, but tell us again, when did you serve? And most importantly, what was your military occupational specialty? Allison, you want to go first? Sure. I uh, served from February 2009 until this past October 2021. I did my first um, five and a half years in the Air Force as military police equivalent. It's called Security Forces. And then after that, I completed the remainder of that 13 years as a chaplain assistant. And then I just recently separated, and I am now a civil servant working with what is called a force support squadron. How about you, James? All right, so uh, I was on active duty from 2012-2018, uh, spent pretty much the entire time in the, the airborne community, still have the, the back and knee aches to, to prove it. Uh, I was chaplain assistant in the, the 82nd, uh, which was very interesting because you're doing a basically a morale-centered job and one of the most high up-tempo units that you have constantly on, um, you know, global reaction force, things like that, where, you know, you can just be on call to get deployed in 72 hours. Uh, did that for two years and then spent the rest of my time in the psychological operations sergeant, which is really, I guess, um, the, the way you describe that is it's geared towards foreign communications, what we want um, the folks in deployed countries to know that was our job to, to sort of message that. Currently, after a, a two-year total break uh, in time between 2018 and 2020, realized I missed it, uh, got signed up with the National Guard, became an officer, uh, 34-year-old second lieutenant, so kind of old for that rank, kind of, you know, closer in age to the majors, but I digress, and uh, I'm a human resources officer in that, in that capacity. Great. Thank you to both of you. And of course, your experience is far more current than mine. When I was in, it was in the 80s, and I was the U.S. Army, worked with SAPA Command, Secretary of the Army of Public Affairs, overseeing the Pentagon Audiovisual Service uh, and all of those many productions that come out of there. So um, thank you again to both of you. And, you know, all three of us chose to serve. None of us were drafted. And so um, maybe I invite you to say a word about what inspired you to choose this form of national service. What did it mean to you? So I'll go first again. Um, for me, it was, I came from a background of a single mother. So I was actually personally motivated originally by the education benefits. Um, that was for my first enlistment. I enlisted for six years and my biggest motivation was education. But after I did that six years, I saw the impact that I could have. So I did re-enlist and went over to the chaplain corps to be able to start assisting in a counseling and mental health capacity. Mm, yeah. How about you, James? Uh, I, I wish I could, I wish I had some higher nobler pur uh, purpose when I first got started, but to, to be perfectly honest, I was just a young man and I knew I'd get in trouble if I was doing something else. So I, I went, I opted for adventure essentially. Uh, my first job as a chaplain assistant became very meaningful, but it was really selected because I just wanted to join as quickly as possible and it was available at the time. And then um, I found that I did have a knack for addressing human problems, I guess. And um, that, that happened concurrently with uh, keeping with a you know, good solid regiment of structure, exercise, so on and so forth that the, the military gives you. And um, I, I appreciate it for being a guiding force at that younger point in my life. So I think I kind of, my patriotism grew as, as time went on. Um, 
can't get too deep into the details in public context, but did Airborne, did SEER, which for those who know about that school, like it, it gives you a different impression. It, get, it, ma it makes you very grateful of your freedoms. So uh, patriotism, I think, is kind of something I learned rather than something I joined for at the time. I really, I, I just needed something to keep, keep a restless soul kind of in check. So that was my main reason at the time. I love both of your sharings about that. And, and I can resonate because when I was fresh out of college, you know, I had a journalism degree and I really was not jazzed about the prospect of going and working in some backwater, you know, TV station, given the traffic report. And by comparison, going to Navy Pier and being able to like go out and be a, a TV journalist in conflict areas was really exciting. And I just, I went, like you said, James, I went for adventure and, and during my course of service, it was impressed upon me even more how lucky we are to live in a representative democracy and to have the freedoms we do. But that was something that grew on me for sure. So thank you for that, guys. And, um, you know, I, I shared with you this a reference to this new study that came out, and I'm, I'm going to pivot to that. I'm going to let the audience know what we're referring to. I found the study really provocative. Um, and I mean, as you know, since 2014, the United States Department of Defense has stated that climate change is a grave national threat across the globe. You know, it's hazards, extreme weather events, but, but more importantly, um, national security impacts due to natural or social vulnerabilities, resource wars, social destabilization, we're seeing those play out. Um, and so this resource that I'm inviting us to reflect, reflect upon some highlights from it uh, is for our viewers, it's a landmark study, excuse me, our audience, it's a landmark study that was released just this year um, it's called An Introduction to Plan E, a Grand Strategy for the 21st Century Era of Entangled Security and Hyper Threats. It's by Dr. Elizabeth G. Bolton, and it was published on April 18th uh, this year in the Marine Corps University Press. Um, just a little more background in her landmark study, uh, Dr. Bolton, who's also a transport officer in the Australian Army. Uh, she says the current situation is this, and I quote, in the 21st century, humanity faces a threat for which there is no precedent to draw on, the climate and environmental change, CEC, hyperthreats. And this hyperthreat has warlike destructive capabilities that are so diffuse that it's hard to see the enormity of the destructions coherently or who is responsible for its hostile actions. It compromises the combined impacts of rapid global warming and the unraveling of Earth's ecological systems. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot to take in. I'm wondering, does that make sense to you? And can we agree upon it? I guess I'll take that. I guess I'll take that one first. So uh, in substance, I, I definitely agree. And I think one of the things that it's important to kind of contextualize the, with this, because uh, of course, the, the environmental crisis is a human crisis. And there's a difference between it being a, a crisis of humans and it being a crisis of a nation. Um, even looking at the way that the DOD words it, right, the ecological issue is, is a danger to the nation. And there's a sense in which you have to realize, well, of course it's a danger to the nation. The world existing as such is kind of predicate for, for the nation existing. But it does kind of show a, a utilitarian bend in that the, the defense sector will always be tied to its state. And it's supposed to be. We all swear an oath to the Constitution. We, we are 
defending the United States. And so there is a sense in which the world or its ecology, they need it to be stable insofar as it is a threat to us, but that's much different than prioritizing the the global ecology first, if if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, it's important to, to notice that distinction and priorities between a citizen eco-activist and the DOD or any other defense service recognizing that the environment in which they operate is changing at a rapid pace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I can, I can come in on, on that as well, that um, I, I, it does make sense and I can agree that that is uh, the case, that that is a threat and it can cause different um, situations for military operations as well as there's different changes. Um, DOD is always going to take that national approach, but as an, an individual, um, I can see how that, no matter what country it is, not just America's DOD, they're all having different impacts by using fossil fuels in their uh, military transports. Um, it was mentioned that she is a transport officer, so of course she's going to have the most experience with that of what is going to be utilized in war efforts or even just in training missions. So those are the types of things that I can think of, not just necessarily to my branch of experience, but just worldwide. Yeah, yeah. Again, the second half of that question that I was asking is, you know, when I say, does it make sense? Do we agree? It seems it's so important that we do agree about what are basic facts, especially when studies like this come out. And do you see in any way a problem with that these days? It does seem like we uh, we live in at least two different epistemological realities sometimes, depending on what one's previous what one's underlying political loyalties and affiliations are. We literally it's one thing to have differing opinions; it's another to not be able to fundamentally agree what is a trustworthy source of information. So, in terms of talking between us, uh, the the general hypothesis being. Uh, we are using finite resources to change the world in ways that are not conducive to human and most other complex forms of life. I, I think that is a, a fair thing that I could agree with. That point. would be a good fact for everybody <laughs> to be able to agree upon right? as a starting point. Yes. Allison, did you want to add to that? Um, I'm in agreement with that as well. Um, I, I can see where things definitely um, be be agreed upon for me. I I, I think James summed that up pretty well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Bolton, also, uh, I, I just found this this whole study very provocative. Um, in her Plan E, uh, she presents a concept for a hyper response to this hyper threat uh, of climate and environmental change. Um, it's a creative demonstration of what a new security approach might look and feel like. Uh, I've not seen that published before, and it deliberately describes some micro solutions to assist in the imagining process, which she really advocates we need to be aggressively involved with. And uh, she sees an important timeline for this reimagining between 2021 and 2025, so basically now. And she states the hyper threat's most dangerous course of action is to provoke cascading tipping elements, accelerating a transition to a hothouse earth state. 
which is uninhabitable for most species. So within the military then, you know, this threat is an unavoidable reality and it's a matter of urgency and agency. And I'm wondering from your experience, how can military members feel agency? A large institution, feel like the Titanic, people are serving, they wanna feel like they have agency maybe to be making a difference with their vocation about this. How, how do you see that maybe happening? So I can speak from Air Force side and I'm pretty sure this goes across DOD. So mm -hmm. most people have probably seen the TV show Shark Tank. And mm -hmm. what the Air Force did is they have what's called Sparkworks and they take forward mm -hmm. people from different, um, we call them AFSCs, Air Force Specialty Codes, but it's the same thing as like an MOS in the Army. It's whatever your job is. And a lot of the time people who work on aircraft or people in the environmental science sections, they can come forward and essentially sell their ideas that they've seen from their experiences of how they can change these different areas. So I've seen people do um, changes to fuel to make the fuel more efficient for aircraft. Um, I've huh. seen them utilize different uh, strategies within medical fields. Hmm. And so it's kind of a way, because we are so heavily dependent on contracting and what we hmm. have to do as government uh, guidelines, which is very important and it's in place for reasons. But sometimes it allows the people who are doing those jobs to have these bright ideas, but they can't do anything with them because mm -hmm. it becomes a conflict of interest. I have to get out and now I have to become a contractor for me to even sell my idea to the DOD. So mm -hmm. it kind of allowed people in the military to be able to flatten that communication time, bring their ideas to the table. And it also can do uh, stuff like in this case with um, environmental focus, they're able to bring those ideas of how their job can be more environmentally supportive of what we should be doing as a military, but also be cost saving to the military. Mm. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. So as always, uh, my mind is boggled by the innovation of the Air Force, and that's actually really cool. And it's great that that's being done. Yeah. Uh, to give to give the Army perspective on it, it's I think I think to be completely honest, it is simultaneously incredibly liberated and also ball and chain. It's ball and chain in the sense that uh, it's the military. It has to be incredibly hierarchical. Um, we are all creatures of orders to a certain degree, and especially at the lowest levels, uh, thinking about things that go along with things such as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right? Are you? Do you have your food and water? Are you secure? Are you safe? Um, the day-to-day -day of the enlisted army grunts is so fast-paced that a lot of these higher order aspects of DOD policy will simply never be touched on cognitively throughout the day because there's just so much going on in the immediate. That said, there's also a liberating effect in that I think the American army in all of its components, active guard as, and so on and so forth, we have the advantage of having learned that it is better to have commander's intent but then to have that intent executed at the lowest possible echelons. This is actually something we've seen the Russians having a problem with is that they mm. have, um, they tend to micromanage their units from high up officers down to the, the lowest echelons. Those low echelons do not have any room to operate. Whereas our NCO Corps, our sergeants, um, mm. 
are mm -hmm. very well developed. So there's this sense in which if the DOD says something or if your commander says something, the execution is largely on yourself. And it's a something of an open interpretation of that, but you can say now that the DOD has put this forward, it then becomes a thing that belongs to all of us, regardless of whether you are a private or a colonel. Mm -hmm. And that should that should motivate you to live in accordance with it in so far as you can. Mm -hmm. uh, no private has control over whether their LMTV or which is a very large vehicle for us. Our our LMTV takes electric or if it takes fuel, but you can do as many of the little things as you can think of and, and do that because you know that you're doing it in accordance with the policy you've been given. That's interesting. And uh, recently I was, uh, I was at a big climate reality training in Las Vegas and I was with a table of Navy vets. And uh, without being able to, to go into a lot of detail, I just want to shout out because they were, they were talking about how the, the Navy right now is really partnering with climate scientists around um, how to fuel and do security operations uh, with naval fleets. And so every branch, you know, as, as you pointed out, at the Department of Defense level, every, every branch is going to take this command or, or mandate down and trickle it down in terms of their uh, special expertise. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting because going back to Bolton, she's calling for this hyper response. Um, but her hyper response is really including some very interesting partners. She, she said it includes climate and environmental scientists collaborating around information, insights, and ideas. She includes what she calls earth protectors, which and she names park rangers, activists, those engaged in environmental protection work in the civilian world. And she also includes in her hyper-response plan global citizens, such as green businesses, NGOs, and I find this fascinating, eco-theology, those who have goodwill toward the earth and the global community. So I'm thinking, wow, how might we imagine military members being engaged in those kinds of hyper-response roles? I mean, you, you talked about day-to-day -day but, you know, when we think about climate scientists, environmental scientists, um, activists within the military, I don't know. What do you think? So coming from the Guard perspective, um, one of the things that we saw during, during the COVID crisis was there were shortages of particular jobs in the economy. A lot of times those were things like bus drivers, school teachers, the, the sorts of jobs that... Um, unfortunately, because I think they, they do deserve higher wages, they tend not to be paid very high, but come with a very high COVID risk because they're around lots of people. Mm. And one of the short-term fixes we saw in some of these states was to activate guard members and essentially have them fill their roles. So they were in uniform, um, but otherwise doing not uniforms jobs. They were doing very conventional civilian work. And while I think that that's, that approach is very band-aid in that it was very quick reaction, there is this sense in which you have this, this reserve in people power um, that drills one, a week and a month. And oftentimes when they are called up to active duty are making more and having a better livelihood than they were in their civilian counterparts and they actually appreciate being called up sometimes. And there, I think that there is the potential to use those um, 
almost like one of the work cores that FDR used to do. Hmm. Now, I do admit that that comes with one particular danger with regard to social stability, which is that, to use a historical example, right, uh, the Roman roads that were put up by the legions exist to this day. However, what are the implications of having the military also be the civil power? Well, that's not always necessarily conducive to political stability. We saw that with Rome. The road mm. still stands, the Roman Empire doesn't. And I think we're a long, long way away from any kind of risk like that, but it is an important theoretical risk. So mm. I think we do have this well of people power that exists in the guard, many of whom would appreciate being called up for these sorts of civil projects, especially if they were geared towards something environmental. Uh, and mm -hmm. it would it would make sense to use them in that way, as long as you did it conscientiously with this idea in mind that it's not a substitute for good civil governance, uh, because that's when when that aspect of political stability, I think, comes into play, too. Mm. Great idea. What do you think, Allison? So I took it a little less of how we could engage the military when I read this question um, and have the military make determination of where they go. I read it more of how military members themselves could be involved. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of um, military members are part of communities, non-government orgs. Some of them may have had a degree that was within environmental, even though they're not in that field when they're serving. Or in mm -hmm. the case of a guard individual, they may be doing that full time outside of it. I've also worked, while they're not a military organization, they are a uniform service. Nova Corps tends to have a lot of people because that is a big focus on oceanic impacts as well as when we have these natural disasters. So a lot of them tend to have, um, a lot of the people I've met in those capacities or have served in non-governmental orgs, they do that in their off time if they are guard or reserve. Um, I've seen that they end up having a lot more engagement and insight. And then also within the Air Force, we do have um, set classifications. It's not like super obvious, but if you look at our recruiting, we actually have scientists, career fields, we have physicists, we have a lot of that. And then where I work specifically as a volunteer at the Air Force Academy, they actually challenge the cadets to start learning all of this even early on in their college education while at the academy, just ways that they can be good stewards, as well as how they really change. They do have a lot learning of about climate change. Wow. Oh, yeah. They, they are not because it's a four-year college university, it's not like a cram fast basic cadet, uh, basic training of like, like eight weeks. They actually have quite interesting conversations. I've, I've had some really good ones with, with cadets that are just asking the question of, you know, how have you done this? What have you done? I've had a few ask me how purchasing works, especially because I'm a budget analyst. I know what it is down to like military contracts. There are caveats to what we have to purchase. We have to clear any type of chemical through hazardous materials to make sure it's not going to impact the base uh, water pan or anything about the base um, grounds. So there's a lot of things that I've had the ability to help them understand before they go off to be leaders, as well as just other people who didn't know, like, hey, you might want to make sure that's approved by this specific contract. So it is being considerate of the area and the uh, natural habitat, especially on the Air Force Academy. It's a very large um, area of the Rocky Mountains. So that's really encouraging to me to hear that the Air Force Academy is really encouraging that kind of study um, as, as part of a basic degree. That's, that's good to know. Um, another piece of, I thought it was good news to me, was that last October, 
October 7th, uh, 2021, the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Environment and Energy Resilience, it's a long title, um, something that was signed by Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin III, uh, was a U.S. Department of Defense uh, release. It was an initial plan to tackle the climate crisis called the initial plan to tackle the climate crisis. And there it is in print. And it serves as a critical first step for incorporating climate change security implications across all relevant DOD strategy, planning, programming, documents, processes. And I thought it was interesting because the plan includes climate-informed decision-making, training and equipping a climate-ready force, building resilience in natural infrastructure, like bases, developing supply chain resilience and innovation, and enhancing adaptation and resilience through collaboration with interagencies, partner nations, and communities. Do you think this could be a vanguard moment for the Department of Defense, and by vanguard, I mean leading the way in advancing new ideas and new developments that you know are applied not just in the DoD but beyond the DoD. Do you think this is a vanguard moment, maybe? So I think it is a good forward push, but I have a feeling for me and from my experience, these types of things have been slow moving, but they've been in discussion. How we purchase, we have to make sure, like I mentioned before, we're buying things that are safe for the environment, for the infrastructure of the base. Um, the building resilience through natural infrastructure as well. Um, one of the things that I oversee funding for is our outdoor recreation program. And what that is, is just natural locations. We have a off-base nature preserve and stuff like that where people go camping those are the types of things that they're actually using in studies through larger resiliency organizations across dod across the air force they're seeing the impact that getting out is still having back on military members and their families because mm -hmm. at the end of the day they always want to see that impact back and they're seeing when you're running these people ragged it is important for them to still see what's around them and be able to realize their connection back and by building more on bases, it's not necessarily a good thing. Sometimes it is good to leave the natural eco-structure the way it is or utilize those structures like um, we have mountain passes and stuff like that. So there's a lot of hiking that our outdoor recreation program does. So it's also showing back how does the earth give back to us in their own way of building resilience in the people as well. So I have a, the way I've seen it is it's been there, but I think this is going to be a very positive forward momentum to keep discussing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In a way, I am uh, I'm hesitant about the concept of the military being in the vanguard of, of anything that really relates to, to social policy generally, but uh, especially when it comes to the environment. And the reason for that is that given the fundamental mission of the military, going back to that idea that the nation, again, we all swear our oaths to the Constitution, the nation does come first, its defense comes first. Um, I think that all language of environmental compliance, and there's nothing wrong with this, it's just based on the mechanics of how the, the military works, all, all language of environmental compliance needs to be read in the context that these are sort of the guidelines that have been placed upon the military by its, its civilian oversight. And there's nothing wrong with that because 
to, to give a very simple argument, right? Um, say that there are two designs of tank and one of those tanks is more environmentally damaging. Say it, it needs more fossil fuel. It just, uh, it's not as efficient, but it has heavier armor. It's more combat effective. If, if you ask a general, most generals in the absence of those sorts of environmental parameters, which one they would prefer, they would take the less environmentally compliant tank because at the end of the day, their mission is to, to win and to defend. And so I think that in terms of good execution and showing what the fruits of these sorts of regulations can be, I think that there, we could be a, a good showcase of that. However, the actual idea has to come from beyond the military. It, it does have to be imposed upon the military ultimately because in the absence of such imposition, our job is to essentially win wars. And well, I mean, I think that's one of the larger things that goes to, to the study. War innately is bad for the environment as much as it is bad for the humans who fight it. So um, yeah, it's, it's a natural conflict of interests in that if you, you can't, you really can't prioritize both. Some of, the, some of the best weapons of war we've ever created are profoundly terrible for the environment. And without civilian oversight saying what we can and cannot do, we will default back to our primary mission, which is to, to win wars. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I'm going to I'm going to take this as a moment to pivot uh, the conversation. Um, thank you for your responses. And Allison, you started to allude to self-care for those serving. And with that in mind, I'm going to pivot to the to military chaplaincy. Um, why I respect your perspectives, you're, you're both guests for this discussion is because of your proximity to military chaplaincy as well as your service. And, you know, I was a PK, a pastor's kid of an 82nd Airborne military chaplain, and, and I've been a veteran chaplain. You both have been assistants to military chaplains and worked directly with military members, delivering spiritual care, among other things. And, and as such, you are or have been involved with caring for the psychosocial spiritual needs of members of a fighting unit, their families, uh, maybe cadets or active duty or guard, as well as the command structure itself. And so um, I think that's an unusual perspective and a really great one here. And, you know, I'm, I'm wondering in the civilian world a lot, we talk about things like climate dread, climate anxiety, climate grief, uh, really affecting people, including a lot of first responders and frontline workers and activists, do you observe climate dread, climate anxiety, climate grief among military members you work with? So I can answer this one first. For when it comes to like enlisted members, I would say not really, um, unless it was something that they were motivated to know beforehand. Like they go that extra mile to recycle and make sure they're choosing the greener option. That comes down to the individual, but the majority of the time enlists are just kind of told, hey, go do what you gotta do, get it done. Um, sometimes in discussions with officers and those in the officer corps, I have heard some uh, climate anxiety conversations more so just a concern of, hey, how could we be doing this better? How can I teach my people under me and my command to do this better? And then when it comes to cadets, they are all pursuing Bachelor of Science, very STEM heavy degrees at the Air Force Academy. So they do learn quite a lot about environmental, how the climate is doing, and they're, they're empowered to have those questions and to ask those questions, especially in an academic sense. And I have definitely had um, cadets in my community that have brought it up. Um, 
I have to go forward. I have to take military into consideration. I'm going to have orders that may go against my exact belief in this. How do I go about this? I may want to choose the more environmental option, but in the moment, in combat, in whatever, I'm going to have to choose what they provided me. And so it was just trying to find like what's a balance for them that they felt that they would feel comfortable with. and and just how that they felt they could give back to the environment or get involved to kind of counterbalance what they're going to be experiencing because some of those things are really just going to be out of their control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you kind of alluded to it a little bit, Allison, but it, 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 anything else you can think of in, in your awareness about trainings for military spiritual leaders, I'm wondering um, about mitigating mental health impacts of climate change um on on the top of my head i can't really think of anything specific it would have to be if they're like religious endorser finds that important to cover but when it comes to actual spiritual leader training a lot of them don't even have a discussion regarding that they do talk about mental health for sure um i don't think i've ever heard had a direct conversation where mental health is impacted by climate change or that direct conversation. It's usually just an umbrella of what can we do to help mental health? Because there's usually, you have a target group and you're gonna be looking at the stressors of that target group when we talk about mental health, but I've never had one specifically to the impact of climate change. James, anywhere? In the, the cases where I do, I can't say climate change specifically, however, um, instances of major environmental impact generally, I have yeah. seen that. And this is where there is, we can do better, in my opinion, because um, it's not so much the big picture of the climate. It's always attached to some underlying social factor. For example, um, a lot of folks were outraged during the Standing Rock controversy. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. of them as a point of native rights, some as a point of, of the oil itself. But um, that was a point I, I, I observed noticeably low morale because of a current events issue. Yeah. The same, though, more in terms of anger than, than disappointment or sadness, uh, when the rainforest was burning and the world seemed mm-hmm. to be doing nothing about it. There, mm-hmm. were, there were folks that, you know, over, over you know, water cooler talk were like, why aren't we there? Mm-hmm. Which is really strong language coming from from enlisted ranks and i think maybe one place where the army is different is that i wouldn't call it climate anxiety or even environmental anxiety but i do believe that the nature of our training builds a sort of vigilance in us over the environment because human beings are very conditioned to see themselves as um they they change the earth, but it is in fact in the case of the army, and I would imagine in the case of the Marine Corps, it is the earth that changes us. We spend mm-hmm. time in the field. It is the forest, and it is being out in nature that turns us into what we become. Mm-hmm. Anybody that thinks that the spirit to to go into pagan things, this is a pagan podcast. Yep. Anybody who thinks the spirit of Fort Bragg's woods is the same as the spirit of Fort Drum's woods or Camp McCall's woods has not spent weeks out there doing fire exercises in those woods. They all have a a certain aspect to them that is unique. And I think living that way naturally makes people more, more, more grateful for 
having those environments and being shaped by them. And on the little things, littering, environmental consciousness, the things that aren't going to stop the world from burning, but at least shape the information environment, I, I think in general, soldiers do a fairly good job at those things. And I don't see it manifesting as anxiety. If anything, maybe we're inoculated against it a little bit better because we realize that, you know, specialist Joe or private Smith doesn't really have a lot of control over whether the world burns, but uh, he is at least of the right mindset to do the things that are asked of him that will actually be beneficial to the earth because he spends a lot of time out in the woods and appreciates it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm thinking too, from um, not a military chaplain perspective, but from a board certified chaplain perspective in healthcare, uh, we talk a lot about these things in, in behavioral health. Uh, and, you know, our work settings allow us an opportunity to really go into a lot of care about it. And I would think that those behavioral health uh, issues and strategies would be something that hopefully would be able to matriculate into. Um, I, I don't know through what department these days uh, within the branches, you know, that are offering support uh, to fighting members as well. Um, it's also been said, and it's true, that the climate crisis is a moral and spiritual crisis as well as existential. And so it calls for moral and spiritual leadership as well. And you're right, James, this is a pagan podcast and you folks are spiritual leaders and we're all pagans. Uh, Circle Sanctuary, as the most established nature-based religion church in North America, has throughout its history been a, a strong supporter of warriors and positive warriorship culture. Um, for the sake of our listeners, if you didn't know, Circle Sanctuary led the Pentacle Quest, which resulted in the Department of Defense adding Wicca as an established religion on its religious markers and headstones and uh, Wicca being indicative of Earth-based religions. And now allowed, of course, are the symbols of the Pentacle, the Awan for Druidry, and also the Hammer for Norse indigenous traditions. And we can really thank the Pentacle Quest for being such an important groundbreaker and in, in acknowledging the need for religious diversity, spiritual diversity. Um, you alluded to nature connection, James, uh, and the way it shapes us. And I'm wondering for both of you, uh, in exercising moral and spiritual leadership, what do you think pagan chaplains working with the military could be doing to fight the good fight? I'll, uh, I'll take that one first. Um, and it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to tie this back to a, a life passage that I, I just had, actually. Um, when I was a younger enlisted person, I bought a Mustang, as so many younger enlisted people will do when I was in my early 20s. And uh, coming from a place of a bit more stability nowadays, uh, financial and otherwise, I actually just traded it in yesterday for a nice little subcompact that is a lot less damaging to the earth. And that was one of the reasons <laughs> I finally got around to doing that. Mm-hmm. And it seems a small thing, but you know, so many drops in the ocean eventually become a puddle. Uh, what if somebody either in moral or actual leadership of, over me said, you know, you, you don't really need a Mustang to be a good soldier. There are all of these cultural elements within the military that they're largely aesthetic. They're somewhat superfluous there is this stereotype of, you know, you're going to, you're going to go lift weights six days a week, buy a Mustang or a large lifted truck, do your damage to the earth. It's the other side of it. 
you know, mm-hmm. we steward mm-hmm. the physical land we're on very well, but then we have these other things that are very much part of this, frankly, yeah, hyper-masculine culture, right? Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not vital. The same country that produced Teddy Roosevelt doesn't need a warrior culture that requires you to buy a lifted truck or a Mustang and do your damage to the earth. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there's these, these small cultural and moral questions that the chaplain naturally touches on that you're not going to nest, you're not going to change every mind, but you're going to at least offer a different perspective, whether or not the person you're talking to is pagan or not, mm-hmm. and give them a different lens through which to view these things. Uh, chaplains, regardless of their their own religious expression, they're not there to make more pagans or make more Christians or what have you. If you have a Christian soldier come to you, your pur- their purpose is to your purpose is to make them the best possible Christian they can be and the best possible soldier they can be or service number, I should say, because we're talking about all branches. Mm-hmm. And so a part of that is going to be, yeah, not leaving such a large footprint on the earth, walking walking with a softer step while still being a strong and confident warrior. And I think that even though that is a very small and personal touch, I, I think that's really what, what the chaplain can provide in terms of this environmental impact. No, I appreciate what you're saying there before I jump to you, Allison, too. It's like I, I think of my work in chaplaincy as, as being a shepherd and a model of worldview, beliefs, and values. And so what I appreciate about what, you, what you're saying is that you can, you can give permission to explore different worldview, model different values and beliefs that might be encouraging in a positive direction. Cool. Allison, what do you want to add? So while I was active duty, I was able to be on like a really small chapel team at a small base in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. So the approach to those chaplains is going to be way different than when I came to the Air Force Academy where you have all different religions. And I've been Mm -hmm. able to see what a Buddhist sensei brings to the table, as well as a Muslim imam and a rabbi and an Orthodox priest, you know, everything on the table, not just your normal Protestant, Christian and Catholic priest. Mm -hmm. And what I would say is I think it, it allows it's harder for them to listen to people unless they're also, oh, you're a chaplain like me. So sometimes it can also impact change in other chaplains around them. To have someone with the same qualifications as them to be able to say, hey, you know, instead of doing that, maybe you could do this and it might be a little bit more beneficial to your program. So having Mm. someone on the same level, even as a a volunteer, I'm not going to be as revered as someone who's wearing the same bars as the chaplain next to them. So while they respect my opinion, it's going to come a little different when you have a a pagan chaplain trying to have those conversations about environmental, um, anything regarding the planet, what that means to your spiritual tradition, because when you're speaking as a chaplain to that, to everyone around you, they're going to take your word as law and you're going to be the subject matter expert because they Mm -hmm. don't know if there are other chaplains that are not experienced. And then another thing that I saw more recently was the fact for, um, I saw in the original question, it said for like diversity, it will definitely help for pagan chaplains to be there because I know for the Air Force, they're working really hard on getting stuff like universalist Unitarians because a lot of the time they're catering to LGBTQIA plus soldiers. They're trying to deal with that. And then you have religious endorsement requirements for some religions like Catholic priests 
can't sit there and counsel a same-sex couple. So they're also looking at that, and that's a good place for, for pagans as well, because we're very inclusive and we're not in that mentality to be judgmental. So that's something that I think um, for diversity as well as just coming in and coming to the table, it's things that we can offer that's a little bit different than other religions that have already come into the military. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of a a value for having more and more pagans matriculate into chaplaincy in the secular world uh, in general, because the more, as you say, Allison, we're on a parity with the same credentials, the same expertise, the same leverage as professionals of other religions, the more we stand shoulder to shoulder with them and, and we can we can be heard and uh, have uh, constructive offerings. Um, any last thoughts, folks? We're kind of coming up on time, but as a, as a word in closing, is there anything either of you would like to say? Thanks for having me. Oh, delighted. Yeah, I'll, I'll reflect that. Uh, thank you for, for having me just to share a, a very brief, um, a very brief army story, but I think it's, it's kind of a positive note to end this on. When I was in officer candidate school, um, I had recognized that they didn't have anything to recycle in, which I found very strange because the Army is ex- usually extremely good at that. You'll find like recycling bins everywhere. And I, during our open question part, and this is in a very basic training style thing where you're not trying to burn up too much of folks' time, I was like, I hate to do this to everybody else, but I have to ask about this. So we had the leadership meeting and I asked, and to my surprise, when I asked an entire chorus of murmurs, and agreements and yeah what about that came up behind me so um we we have spent today talking about these huge macro issues that most of us feel we have no immediate control over but the good news is that i think the sentiment is there and that's a good place to start so a good place to start and that's a perfect place to stop i want to thank both of you so much for joining us that wraps up our time for this installment Uh, Really appreciate uh, you joining me today, James and Allison, and thank you to our audience for listening. Thank you to our special guests again and to our producers, Reverend Jeanette and David Ewing. A new Blue Marble podcast air live on the third Friday of every month at 5 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern times. You can always download past Blue Marble podcasts on the CSNP network. You can go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash CSNP, or you can follow on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash CSNP, sorry, CSN podcast. And once again, I'm your host, Reverend Charbert. If you value what you heard here today, please share this information with others. Till next time.
and thank you for joining us on the Circle Sanctuary Network Podcasts, presented by Circle Sanctuary and produced for all who follow the Nature Center paths. Join us here throughout the week for various programming connecting the community around the world. And please don't forget to watch for updates on the Circle Sanctuary website at www.circlesanctuary.org. And follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash csnpodcasts. We can also be found on your favorite podcast hosting sites, such as iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and others. And until next time, many blessings. <laughs>